0: Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am the director of ECFR, and this week we are talking about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. The European security architecture is in the process of being revised, either by a US-Russian negotiation or through a further Russian invasion of Ukraine. Europeans are caught between the prospect of a new Yalta or a catastrophic war on the European continent that could easily escalate out of control. And they're doing this without having any real say over what's going on or any seat at the table. Um, It looks like... From where we are now, it's going to be quite hard for Europeans, whether collectively through the offices of the high representative um, for foreign and security policy, or individually as leaders of their different countries, they're going to be able to have much say over either the course of the negotiations or any emerging conflict. So what we're going to do today is try and uh, look into how we got here and above all, how we could change it. What are European interests? To what extent do they overlap with American interests? And what possible ways could there be out of this crisis of self-created impotence, which Europeans are facing at the moment? And I've got an all-star cast to help us make sense of this. First up is Marie Dumoulin, who is the director of the Wider Europe Programme at ECFR. And she's joined us recently from um, the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, where She has worked for many, many years on all aspects um, of the the relationship with Russia and Eastern Europe. Um, Also, uh, coming back to the podcast, we have Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR, has worked a lot on Russia and Eastern Europe and is currently sitting, I think, in Estonia, a country which is watching very carefully how this crisis um, uh, um, unfolds and and feels uh, very... Uh, affected by uh, the new dynamics of European security and from Washington back to the podcast once again we have ECFR's research director and in-house expert on the US as well as many other things Jeremy Shapiro. Welcome uh, to all of you thanks for joining. Thanks. So why don't we just start with where we're at at The moment. Um, Marie, um, what is happening on the ground? What's happening in these different negotiations that we've been seeing, both the sort of bilateral ones between Moscow and uh, Washington, but also the the different places that they've taken these negotiations from the NATO-Russia Council to the OSCE? Um, and other fora?
1: So if you look at the situation on the ground, uh, what you see is an even increasing pressure over the last week, uh, because not only has um, the deployment of troops at the Ukrainian borders not diminished, but uh, there has been on Friday a massive cyber attack against government institutions in Ukraine, Um, which is not officially attributed to Russia, but of course in this context it's difficult to think it has no relation to Russia. And the second element, which also increased pressure, is the announcement of military drills with Belarus, which potentially opens a new front um, on the north of Ukraine. Um, Against this background there has been an intense uh, diplomatic activity last week uh, with the meetings you mentioned, i.e. bilateral uh, consultations between the US and Russia in Geneva, then a Russia NATO Council, and then a discussion at the OSCE Permanent uh, Council. Um, Nothing really new has came out of these discussions so far. Um, It seems that each side has reaffirmed its negotiation positions um but all have committed to further dialogue which is maybe a good sign um now the discussions will be going on in the next few days um and if no real substance comes in um i don't know how long um the russians will keep uh, this openness for discussion
0: great thanks marie um so obviously um the uh fear in many places is that russia is just trying to find a pretext for uh, an invasion that's definitely the fear that we've been hearing from from washington jeremy how do the people you've been talking to in the biden administration in the policy community see where we're at at the moment
2: yeah it's about defcon too i would say um they are uh they i think you're, you're you've characterized it correctly by and large people here especially in the government seem to believe that the Russians have made the decision to to do this in some way, shape, or form. Uh, And that the effort that they're involved in right now is a sort of dissuasive effort rather than a deterrent effort. Um, And and they've embarked on sort of two tracks for that. One is um, sort of demonstrating what the punishments will be, which is a sort of combination of uh, pretty tough economic sanctions, um, uh, arming of the Ukrainians and a general effort to make it seem to make Ukraine's Ukraine seem undigestible. This is the so-called porcupine strategy. I don't know if you've ever tried to eat a porcupine, but apparently that's hard. So um, that
0: in a set is basically about turning um Ukraine into Afghanistan, um, in the same way that Afghanistan proved undigestible for the Soviet Union. They 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 want to threaten Russians that Ukraine will? will yeah, have.
2: I think I think that that's the approach. Uh, but then on the other side of the equation, there is a, they're, they're trying to put together a package of things which might be positive incentives um, for the Russians. Um, and they've put together a bunch of arms control initiatives, which they think will be attractive to them and uh, various limitations on military exercises, which they've been interested in. And there's quite a bit of talk here about other incentives that they might put forward to complement the negative incentives that have been so public. Those would obviously be much more private. I'm told that, uh, I'm not really sure if they've come up with much. I'm told that um, Tony Blinken is going to Europe this week with uh, 10 different proposals that they might make uh, to the Russians, but they're first testing those out Uh, with the allies. So it'll be amazing if they survive, if three survive. But also, I don't know what those are, frankly. Uh, And I think there's, they're extremely controversial within the US government. And
0: just before we go to Kadri to tell us a bit more about the the way that Russians are thinking about it. Obviously, Washington is torn between on the one hand wanting not to get sucked into further into European security so that it can carry on pivoting their energy and attention to the Indo-Pacific. But at the same time, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Biden is uh, quite keen not to be seen as weak. How how does that play into what kinds of things you think they might uh, offer? I'm asking to speculate here. It doesn't have to be stuff that they're actually offering, but... How does that play out in terms of the? Yeah, the
2: domestic politics of this are tough, um, and I think a frame has developed around Biden already, which which, dem- which uh, accuses him, I think, quite unfairly, of weakness. A frame has developed around Biden already, which is accusing him of weakness, I think, quite unfairly, and that frame is already having a political effect on Biden, um, and so he's going to have to respond to that, uh, and he's going to, he, they're going to be very concerned to demonstrate uh, strength and that's going to limit the amount of concessions they can make. At the same time, it's very clear to me that the administration understands that if the Russians actually do invade Ukraine, it's a complete collapse of their foreign policy. They would lose all attention on China. They would forever be in the situation of pushing Russia into China's arms. Uh, And it would be a domestic political disaster that would be far greater than um, whatever concessions they have to endure to avoid it. So I think that there is some willingness to take some domestic political risks with this.
0: And does that willingness mean that Americans are not going to be super interested in in listening to what Europeans say in the many meetings which they're having with Europeans um, over the, the
2: days ahead honestly I think that that's only one reason why they're not very interested in what the Europeans have to say um, and the, but I think the primary reason that they're not interested in, is that the Europeans don't really bring much positive or negative to the table I you know I remember one US official would always say to me every time I said well the Europeans won't like that they say well what will they do differently you know uh, and I think if you if you're an American official and you're struggling with all of these competing interests and all of the all of the pressures that you have, uh, What you sort of start to understand is that no matter what you do, the Europeans are going to give you just as much as they were always going to give you. So is is what is what the Americans do going to change the German or the Polish or the French position doesn't seem like it. Uh, so um, I think they're not really paying a lot of attention. The obviously, they have a, a line which is important in US domestic politics that they are not going to do anything without the Europeans they are not going to talk about Ukraine without Ukraine, they're not going to talk about Europe without Europe. Um, and so they're, they're honoring that I think with a huge number of consultations, but I don't think at the moment it's weighing very heavily on their decision process.
0: Okay. So let's, um, let's look at, uh, Russia now, um, Kadri obviously, um, everyone's trying to work out what Putin is, uh, is trying to do. Um, what's your reading of, of, what's been happening over the last few days, both the sort of escalation on the ground and um, the way that the Russians have have conducted themselves through these negotiations since they published their two draft treaties um, for the new European security architecture.
3: Yes, um, well, people in Moscow are waiting and guessing, uh, just like us. Uh, They also do not know what the Kremlin's ultimate plan is. Uh, it looks like also the Russian diplomats who uh, traveled to Geneva and Brussels to present Russian drafts might not know it. So everyone is, is waiting for indications uh, from the Kremlin. Um, Russian analysts have picked up that the West has been talking with Russia about the issues. It has not wanted to talk uh, for the past 30 years. I mean, at least there is acceptance now that Russia might be unhappy with European security order. And, and even if Westerners do not view that unhappiness as a legitimate one, uh, very few are on illusions illusions that is somehow in our powers to tell Russians, not to be unhappy. We, we, we cannot change the way they think about uh, these things. And yeah, uh, as to what next, people are guessing. I mean, many in Moscow think that Putin has decided that uh, the question of Ukraine will need to be resolved by force ultimately. Um, that said, not many believe in sort of Second World War style land war being launched. And that is for what the troops seem to be assembled at, at the border. Uh, that's something that also I find very hard to believe. I, I don't think that Russian society or Russian political system can uh, can uh, stand the stress of, of, of that. I am also not sure that the full negotiation Process is just a cover uh, to get a pretext to go to war. I think for that they are investing far too much energy in it. Uh, If if Russia wants to go to war, they will go to war. And they uh, they would, yeah, they would take care of some primitive pretext. Uh, But but that's different. So um, I think there are still hopes that this negotiation process could achieve something that Russia wants. And also, one thing, um, reflecting on what Jeremy said, um, it might make sense to tell our American listeners that I don't think Russians consider Biden weak. Uh, I don't think that Afghanistan was a sign of, of weakness for, for Russians. I mean, yes, the uh, state-sponsored media made the most of it, but but not the foreign policy-making elite. I, I dictate a rather different mood there. I... I think they understood that Biden is picking his fights. He is refusing to be the world's policeman, fighting on all fronts simultaneously. And that's a smart way to go about it. And that actually makes the United States stronger. So paradoxically, my view also is that one reason why um, we are having re-escalation and talks right now is that. Because of Biden, but not because Biden is weak, but exactly because in Biden we have someone who can speak on behalf of the West. During the full Trump period, there was no such person.
0: Presumably it's also because the Russians noted how key Biden was to have a quiet Russian front and therefore acting up um, in exchange for for quietening down um, was a kind of obvious way of, of making... Uh, of, of extracting concessions. What one of the interesting things um, about the Russian response to this whole process so far has been their reluctance to engage with Europeans, um, which mirrors the American uh, lack of, of fundamental interest in in what Europeans think, which Jeremy was just talking about. Um, in that context, why do you think there was this Lavrov? Baerbock meeting yesterday, was that a kind of uh, new development or is that, was that also a kind of uh, meaningless meeting? No,
3: I don't think it was meaningless, uh, but I would view it in the context of Russian-German uh, relationship and, uh, and also Normandy format. I mean, Baerbock is new foreign minister of Germany. Uh she needs to get up to speed. Uh, this is the most burning foreign policy issue. Russia has always been a key partner for Germany uh, in positive ways or negative, but that's an important connection. So I think from her point of view, it was completely logical. Uh, to make that visit to Moscow. Uh, I was happy to see that she was received politely. She also performed very well. I mean, in Germany, many people ask beforehand uh, that oh, she's inexperienced. What can we expect? Uh, I watched the press conference. She was very self-confident. She made all the right points, both positive and negative. And the one thing she achieved, um, if that was an achievement, Moscow seemed to indicate that they would be willing to continue with Normandy format, and they would be happy to see also American envoy working on parallel track the way it has been before. Uh, So so let's see uh, what that will eventually amount to, whether that proves to be significant or not, just a small piece of much bigger puzzle uh, Either way. Uh, but well, I think it was a good visit. But of course, it didn't bring Europe back as a significant player on issues
0: Okay. Well, that's our, our kind of main topic now. Like if Europeans want even to be a player, let alone a significant one, what do they need to do? Maybe we could sort of start by talking a bit about, about European interests and the extent to which they overlap with other players, because it seems, you know, at a very kind of headline level, um, the West is quite united. None of us want there to be a war in Europe. We don't want uh, the return of, of, of a Russian sphere of influence. We want to protect the sovereignty of, of countries to choose whichever security alliances um, they're part of. But at the same time, I think there are kind of differences. Some of the the, the ones are obviously related to geography, if there is a, a war <laughs> The refugees are not going to be showing up in in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, it's not American gas which is going to be cut off um, if there is a kind of set of sanctions which which escalate. But also um, the whole idea of war on the European continent is obviously more of an existential threat to the European Union and the whole idea of Europe as a peace project than it is to, 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 to the U.S. Um, but Marie, how would you sort of define the different interests on Europe? Because obviously one of the reasons we have these problems is that there are such different perspectives between uh, within Europe as well as between Europe and the US.
1: Well, that's one of the disappointing points in the current discussion that uh, the Europeans are insisting they want to be part of the discussion. They have been displaying unity at the last uh, Gimnish informal Foreign Affairs um, Minister's meeting. Um, But this unity is just about we want to be part of the discussion and there doesn't seem to be any common understanding of what European interests are in the discussion, nor does there seem to be a real discussion about it. Um, There is an ongoing discussion about sanctions um, and about the need to have a strong package to deter Russia. Uh, from invading Ukraine, Um, but there is not much of a discussion about what the EU should look for in these discussions or what the EU should um, try to avoid. Um, Now it's clear that the Europeans want to avoid a war, it's clear that they wouldn't like a Russian-US deal uh, that would be detrimental to their security. Um, but I don't see so far a real discussion about um, what is it that uh, makes European security interests, um, and, and this is precisely what you were mentioning. I mean, um, gas supplies, uh, refugees. Um, even if 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 we come to a situation where the US tries to turn. Ukraine in a new Afghanistan then uh, there will be issues with arms dissemination etc which will be detrimental to European security and this discussion is um,
0: so far not going on. Jeremy to what extent do you think that there there are kind of overlaps and differences between the both between Americans and Europeans also within Europe about what we could do?
2: Yeah I I think that there is um, obviously in the ways that you characterized a big difference in the, in, the, in the US and European interests on the issues in terms of refugees, in terms of energy, in terms of economic fallout, uh, in terms of the, just overall the effects of a war or of a peace settlement. I think those are massive, but I, I guess the, what's always been interesting about the, about the way and the reason that the US is able, whether it wants to or not, to control Western policy toward Russia, is that the U.S. sits kind of in the middle of the European debate? Um, that actually, uh, the U.S. sits between, let's say, you know, Poland and Italy, on this issue, um, and that's one of the reasons why um, the U.S. is able to bring uh, all the countries along, um, and it's one of the reasons why uh, the U.S. approach um, is as unifying as it can be. And to me, this gets to uh, for Europe that the U.S. is actually kind of necessary to create any unity within Europe on Russia questions, generally speaking. You can see that the the countries are actually on both sides of the issue, the Italians and the Poles are sort of asking for US leadership because they know they can't agree with each other and they'll never come to anything. Um, And to me, this gets to the most fundamental problem that the Europeans have with formulating a Russia policy. Obviously, if they if they had one, they have leverage that they could use so that is beyond even what the Americans can bring to bear. Um, but uh, they there is this view in Europe, but it's, it's almost central to European political culture, which I sort of noticed as an American, I would point out by the way, that this is even present within ECFR, is that, um, is that unity comes through building consensus from the bottom up. And so what they need to do at these Meetings is get everyone to agree on what Russia policy is, and they never will. The American perspective is that unity comes, or or at least consensus comes from leadership, and that somebody needs to to seize the reins and to force everybody to accept their leadership. Uh, Americans have managed to do that over time, almost automatically. No one in Europe is standing up to take that role. The Germans are, are, you know, the French are sort of standing up, but don't seem to be managing it. The Germans seem to me to be the only candidate that could really do that, but frankly, they didn't do it under Merkel, and and as far as I can tell so far, the new chancellor isn't even trying.
0: But they did do it to an extent of pushing through the sanctions regime after the annexation of Crimea and setting up the Normandy format with the...
2: That's fair. I mean, I think you can see some isolated examples of this, Um, uh, and I think I would have detected even a trend toward it from 2014, as you're describing. So I should have been a little bit more circumspect, but I guess in this particular crisis, I've actually seen a move away from it. Some of that might have to do with the new German government and with the fact that they are that they have internal divisions, or some, or or just that Schultz is not Merkel, but whatever, it's not happening.
0: So Marie was involved in a lot of the uh, French attempts at leadership when she was in government. So it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on that. But maybe before we do that, Kadri, you're sitting in in Tallinn. Um, uh, which is one of the places that's probably the most nervous about what's going on at the moment. Um, and, you know, I, I met with senior Estonian politicians recently who, who are very keen to tell us that these security questions are may be interesting in an academic way for other Europeans, but they're kind of very real <laughs> for Estonians. How, what? Uh, how do you think people in Eastern Europe are feeling both about the U.S. How much do they trust Biden not to sell them out, not to agree to a kind of yalta two? Um, what how how do they see the prospects of, of of getting the Germans or the French or other players to to help them? How worried are they about the fact that um, that uh, Europeans are not at the table, or is that something which is which is comforting because they're because they think that if there was a European at the table, it might be Macron or someone like that who is very keen to do a deal with the Russians.
3: Yeah, well Estonians are used to not being at at the table or uh, I can I can detect some Schadenfreude Friday directed at Berlin and Paris but you know now, now you experience what we have experienced for a long time uh, our fate discussed without us uh, but now in um, in all seriousness people people are worried because uh, Russia really is existential danger to to all of the Baltic states there is no question about that. There is some debate as to uh, you know, whether after occupying Ukraine, Russia will move on to the Baltic states, or or is there some paradigmatic difference in how Russia views the Baltics and, and Russia? Myself, I'm in the latter camp, but I'm not sure uh, that camp prevails in, in the local debate. Um, people are. Uh, Appealing uh, to the U.S., uh, they uh, they are trying their best to influence decision making there. Uh, hopes are high, but Congress will never ratify uh, any, you know, sort of sellout of, of core principles. Um yeah, so overall it is it is anxious. I think people are also looking for ways to boost uh, security of the Baltic states uh, by asking for additional troops to be placed here. Uh, and of course, Russia's requirements that the Baltics be demilitarized, these um, mm, don't go down very well at all.
0: Okay. We've only got about five minutes left, so maybe we can get really practical in the last five minutes and and just talk to all three of you about, you know, starting from where we are. Obviously, it's like the old Irish joke about getting to Tipperary. We wouldn't want to start here. But starting from where we are now, what practical things do you think Europeans could or should do over the next uh, few days and weeks if we want to? to have some sort of say over what happens. Marie, do you want to go first?
1: Yes, what, well, basically, I think there are two aspects to the question. There is the sanctions debate, which is uh, ongoing and which uh, on which the EU needs to agree on an ambitious package. And there is a second part of the discussion which, as I said, is not uh, going on so far, um, in which the EU should define core interests in terms of its own security, Um, arms control um, options, um, NATO Russia uh, mechanisms, um, all kinds of things that could help improve um, EU security, uh, and on which you definitely need to have uh, consensus among the EU, which is not happening so far. Okay, Jeremy?
2: Yeah, well, I think that Marie hit on the two most important, uh, which are, you know, the idea that they should have a sort of independent sanctions approach. And I would add that they should be saying to the Americans, um, look, this is going to cost us a lot more than it's going to cost you. So um, please contribute, and that uh, and that could um, I think that could change the U.S. debate a little bit. Um, and the and then the they should be developing their own proposals, uh, which Marie just covered about about what the European security order should look like. I would add a, a couple of other things, although I do think those are the two most important. So uh, uh, I can just reemphasize that, which is I think they should be. Preparing for uh, refugee flows in a very um, concerted and public way, both to demonstrate to the Russians that they're uh, ready for it and to demonstrate to the Americans that they're taking the situation seriously. Um, you know, this will be a strange refugee crisis, I suppose, because it will be uh, it would be Ukrainians, and um, uh, you know, something like two million Ukrainians were welcomed in Poland uh, uh, after 2014. Um, so uh, demographically, these countries might like it. I think the Russians might notice that and intersperse quite a few Syrians in a sort of combination uh, with, uh, of the Belarus crisis, Syrians and Afghans, um, which could complicate it. I think the Euro- Europeans would be well uh, advised to be prepared for that and to show publicly that they're prepared for it. Um, I think that they, they should also be taking movement on the energy market to demonstrate something similar which should be thinking about ways in which they could demonstrate resilience, re-talking, uh, I know it's very difficult for the Germans, but talking more about nuclear power, thinking about with the Americans, what they can do to secure some um, gas shipments, that, that's gonna be very tight in the market. Um, but there are other possible sources of gas that, um, that the Europeans can tap into or that will be more expensive, but that they should be willing to do. I think that those those are the sort of four moves I see, which they should be taken quite publicly.
0: Okay. What about you, Kadri? Maybe when you answer it, you might want to reflect a bit on, on what kind of ideas Europeans might put forward on the European security architecture to, to the extent that that is possible.
3: Yeah, that's a key question, really, because I um, I think one reason why Europeans are so divided behind uh, yeah the United headlines is that we don't really have leverage, especially on the question of, of European order. I mean, we all subscribe to uh, Paris Charter based European order, but we want America to uphold it for us, and uh, there is hardly any thinking being done about you know how to do that ourselves uh, if if America gets gets different views. Some of that might have been happening in in during trump presidency when we saw that we cannot necessarily rely on on the guy in 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 washington Mm. it's people are not prepared for the same exercise now that that biden takes a different strategic outlook Uh, so i think the europeans really we should we should conduct a proper review of our uh, leverage uh, as well as our resilience and and then see what what we can do with that. And of course, the elephant in the room is is the European security order because, you know, Paris charter based order, I I fear it could work well in the continent where all conditions were relatively benign. And now that that is not the case, how to be with it, how to how to enforce it? That's that's a really big question and and actually something that you can tackle only cautiously.
0: I think it's definitely something that we're going to have to tackle again on the world in 30 minutes. It's a, a really uh, big and meaty set of issues and I suspect is not going to go away Um <laughs> in the the weeks that come. But I think that's all we've got time for today. Thanks a lot for a wonderful discussion. We got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Marie, what's on your bookshelf for the moment?
1: Um, it actually has uh, little to do with the discussion we had. Um, it's a book by a French former diplomat and now a, a special advisor to Institut Montaigne, uh, Michel Duclos. Um, and the book is La France dans le bouleversement du monde, um, French in the New World Disorder. Um, And it's about how Macron has been trying to adapt um, French foreign policy paradigms to the challenges of the new world disorder. And the book is also a way to launch a debate about foreign policy in advance of um, the presidential elections um, in a few weeks from now in France.
2: Great. What about you, Jeremy? I've been trying through my bookshelf segments to, to encourage people to read more novels, but I don't think I, I feel like I'm not having a lot of success, but I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, and so uh, I'm reading right now one of my favorite science fiction authors, uh, Neil Stephenson. He has a, uh, he by the way, invented the metaverse. Um, and he has a new book called uh, Termination Shock. Which is about the, let's say, unexpected consequences of a geoengineering project to reverse climate change.
0: Wow. What about you, Kadri?
3: Yeah, well, to tell the truth, I. I spend far too much time following Russian telegram channels and and all that, uh, getting bits and pieces relevant to the current situation. But um, my ambition is to take a more systemic view at everything. And for that, I have Andrei Zagorsky's book about Helsinki process. So I I, I want to go back to the basics.
2: Oh, my God, I'm really failing.
3: (laughs) But you're being realistic.
2: (laughs) I'm going to send you my book after I'm done with the cab
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks a lot to all of you for listening to us. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. We put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ucfr.eu podcasts. If you've enjoyed um, all of our musings, I would advise you to take out a subscription on whatever platform you've used to download us from. And while you're there, you might as well give us a five-star rating and a positive review because that will really help drive traffic towards the uh, the podcast and um we will love you for it but for now from Marie Dumoulin, Kadri Leek, Jeremy Shapiro and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of this episode is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Chris Eichberger.